Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Crime World with me, Nicola Talent, is coming to your town with live shows across the country. Following our flagship show, Omerta, almost sold out at the Olympia Theatre Dublin on April 27th, we're taking to the road with promoter MCD. We'll be in the INEC Killarney on April 30th, Dolans of Limerick on May 3rd, and in Belfast Limelight on May 17th. Then it's on to Cork at Cypress Avenue on May 18th, and finally Galway, where we will perform at Monroe's on May 19th. For tickets, check venue websites. Omerta the sacred secret code of the underworld. But what happens to those who break it? There's no doubt he knew what he was doing, but he owed the mafia big time. They continued to help him as long as he was beneficial to them. And that's just the way they work. But it was indicative of, of Sinatra's mentality about how to deal with problems. You know, that the mob were his first port of call. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Frank Sinatra, or Old Blue Eyes as he was known, was one of the most popular entertainers in the 1940s and 50s. A singer, actor, and a member of the famous Rat Pack, the Bobby Soxer was also moonlighting as an associate of the Mafia. Today I'm talking to Douglas Thompson and Mike Rothmiller about their explosive new book, Frank Sinatra and the Mafia Murders. They tell me about the shocking revelations in the hundreds of pages of files kept by the FBI, the Mafia's influence on Hollywood, and how Sinatra's relationship with the mob was mutually beneficial. I'm Chloe Domini and this is Crime World, a podcast from sunderworld.com. Mike, you have been on the podcast before chatting to Nicola about one of your previous books, but Douglas, this is your very first time, so welcome to Crime World. Douglas, um, tell us a little bit about how yourself and Mike came together to write this book about Frank Sinatra and the, the Mafia murders. Well, we, we connected uh, some years ago um, through a um, colleague in London um, to do a book on Marlon Monroe and the death of Marlon Monroe which Mike had a um, great deal of inside information and 
interviews and you know decades of investigation about um so that you know we did that that was became very successful and um we were keen to do something else and we done it we you know got in the in the marlin book we got a lot of the uh sinatra plays a big part in that and that whole kind of hollywood of the 50s 60s and right the way through um so i think following that we thought sinatra and particularly his association with the mafia american mafia um would produce uh, an exciting and an interesting and a new book because of Mike's great facility um, as a former LAPD uh, secret policeman, really. He, mm. and knowledge of files and background and connections, he was able to facilitate quite a lot of um, new information. Um, and that's really how we... And we, that's where we started off anyway. Yeah, of course. So this is your second book together. Like you said, you, you did the first one on, on Marla Monroe. Um, Mike, can you tell us a bit about how, I mean, when I read that there was, you know, this huge amount of FBI files about Frank Sinatra, how does one even, be, where do you know where to start with that? I mean, you've obviously got this amazing background experience in, in working in law enforcement and everything like that before, you know, to delve into these files. What are you looking for? Well, I look, I look for specific things because the files are so vast, the intelligence files on that the FBI had on Sinatra, the CIA has on Sinatra, and also LAPD intelligence where I work that they had on Sinatra. So had to part down some to the items that were critical or new or very significant and uh, just ignore the other issues that were in the intelligence files, like where he went to dinner and that sort of thing. So that's, with my background knowledge in that, I was able to focus on those particular issues when I started uh, obtaining FBI files and other files. Uh, going through them, I found the items that were significant, uh, and I knew they're significant because of my background, because sometimes mm. intelligence reports are written in a certain fashion where the average person, if they read it, they wouldn't understand what they're saying. But if you've been in that business, you understand what they're saying, then that leads you to something else and leads to another report, another report. So that's how I, I approached it. Mm, of course. And tell us then a little bit about, I guess, we, we want to start at the beginning with this story in terms of how did Frank Sinatra become involved with the mafia? I suppose with a lot of mafia involvement, it's familial ties, it's, you know, it's you're born into it. So how did Frank end up becoming associated with them? Was it familial or was it sort of his fame kind of lent him to lean in with this this crowd? No, he was basically born into it. His father, um, uh, the, you know, there were Sicilian connections um, and the father came from Sicily, not far from where um, Lucky Luciana, who was one of the great uh, early uh, leaders of the mafia in America, was born. Um, and where they lived uh, in Hoboken in New Jersey, they uh, they ran a bar, a neighborhood bar, which was basically a hangout for, um, if you've seen the Sopranos and they all gather in their neighbor, you know, their kind of local, as it were. Um, and everybody was connected. There were made men, there were bootleggers, there were um, gunmen, hitmen. Uh, everybody knew each other. And little Frankie Sinatra, whose mother adored him and sort of dressed him up like little Lord Fauntleroy, which was kind of, in retrospect, rather amusing, 
um, used to kind of sing for his supper there and get nickels and dimes from all these hoodlums. Um, so they liked him. He was, a, you know, he was a little kid, a little mascot for them, I suppose. And obviously, as he grew, um, some of these guys grew in stature. Uh, prohibition ended. Uh, they went into other forms of uh, organized crime, uh, began expanding, uh, became, becoming far more powerful, and, as, and helped this little guy with his singing career. And very early on, I think he was still in his teens, when the, mob, the local mobsters were A, mentoring him, watching after him, and also uh, kind of guiding him to the next microphone. And with their help, obviously his career took off. I mean, it was a struggle. I mean, they, uh, they had to connect with New York. They had to get him on the right radio stations. But these guys had influences. I mean, at this point, it certainly wasn't all horses' heads and beds and Godfather stuff. It was more favors and um, scratch your back, I'll scratch, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It was at that level, I think, that's, you know, then. Of course, this, his Sinatra's fame grew and he was able to return favors. Then, you know, then it was became the, the prizes and the sacrifices being made were a lot, lot, lot larger. Uh, it was a kind of Faustian deal from very early on, I think, you know, when he was nine, mm. ten years old. So was he, I guess, I guess, was he a singer, you know, who kind of lent, like, lent his fame to the mafia, or was it, was it he, a, was he a gangster that just also happened to be a singer? A singer, I, well, it's my thing, but. He was an entertainer, a singer. He was an ambitious, an ambitious guy, racing for the top, quite arrogant, uh, quite determined. Um, and it, his, his fame was, as I say, was facilitated by his connection with the, the mafia. Um, and, and he, I think he, he's in later years, well, through, at the height of his career, he was certainly embarrassed by all of that. But he could never really deny it, which, and of course, he mm. did, which made him very hypocritical. So it's um, um, I, I, there's a great quote from Donald Zeck, the Daily Mirror journalist, who called him Saint Francis of Assisi with a shoulder, shoulder holster, and I think that's about right. I mean, Sinatra came across as this sort of angelically voiced guy, could sing, give me people mm. cry, dance, um, smile. But at the same time, he could, you know, punch punch through a wall in anger and upset. Um, some supposed slight against him. And as you mentioned there, you know, he kind of denied these links to the mafia. So I have to ask, I mean, at the time, you know, of the height of his fame, was the public and the media aware of these supposed links to the mafia for, for Sinatra? And if so, how was it portrayed in the media? The, um, the there was always hints in the media. <clears throat> the American, the kind of Errol Wilson, uh, who was a famous uh, gossip columnist in America, and various other these, the big uh, female columnists, Hollywood mm -hmm. columnists, they kind of would allude to it, and it would be, you know, it would be, it would be euphemisms for um, bodyguards or for guys with broken noses or whatever it was that, that he hung around with. But mm -hmm. I don't, but they certainly, a um, bit like the the Kennedy administration, uh, I think 
basically mainstream media looked the other way um, a lot of the time, uh, as much, I think, law enforcement did, because um, it's the, the fame and so on and the Hollywood connections didn't disguise it, but they kind of gave, mm. kind of wrapped it around, kind of a kind of Teflon wrapping around him. And I suppose as well, one of the things that was reported on at the time, for sure, um, was Frank's attendance at what became known as the Havana Conference. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about maybe what the Havana Conference was and what his purpose for being there was? Basically, he was a courier at the time. That was the excuse they used. Frank's going to come down and entertain this very select group of mobsters. And... uh, they used him as a carrier to bring cash with him, $2 million. And that was uh, coming primarily out of Chicago, the Chicago mob. And uh, he did it. He, there's no doubt he knew what he was doing, but he owed the mafia big time. And also they thought that being an entertainer, uh, he's going to be able to get through customs checks and that sort of thing on both ends going leaving the U.S. and when he arrived in Cuba. And so that's what he did. Uh, he did them an enormous favor because throughout his life until that point, they did many, many favors for him. And he owed them. So tell us a little bit about that then. Kind of, this is something obviously that you go into a lot deeper in the book. Obviously, it's, it's a connection to murder, the mafia murders. Um, what were the sort of favors that the mafia would have done for Sinatra over time? They got him into uh, positions where he was performing, and they also kept him out of trouble in some respects. But if he wanted to get into a particular place, uh, whether it's a movie, a venue to entertain, a lot of times he could do that on his own with his people, but there are times he needed the influence and the power of the mafia. And some of the guys that he had working for him was like Sidney Korshak, an attorney in Beverly Hills, who... Virtue was probably the most powerful guy in Hollywood at the time. He could shut down movies, shut down, tell whatever he wanted to do. He was uh, Frank's, one of his attorneys. And so he would go to Sydney. Sydney would make his calls. And sometimes they would uh, contact some mafia bosses to also become involved, just to make a call uh, that Frank wants this position. We would truly appreciate it if he would get this position uh, or this venue to perform in. So... It was going both ways. The mafia made money off him and he made money because of the mafia. So their their relationship was very beneficial for both sides. Absolutely. If if he didn't benefit the mob, they would have never been around him uh, mm. throughout most of his life. So uh, they saw, for a better term, a cash cow and they continued to help him as long as he was beneficial to them. And that's just the way they were. Uh, I spoke to a lot of mafia people, a lot of mafia bosses for the year. And if somebody wasn't, if you want to say performing, even though he's a performer, they weren't performing, bringing in money, they cut him loose or they killed him. So mm. that's what it boiled down to. Mm. And so his, I guess his association as an, and his involvement with the mafia, was it, was he just an associate who had these kind of ties and these friends and they were able to do things for each other? Or was he involved in a more sinister way? He wasn't involved in the most sinister way because they didn't, they wouldn't trust him, first of all. Uh, the only people that were involved in, say, like hits and that sort of thing, the real sinister things, were made men uh, because they could mm. trust them, in a sense. Or 
they thought they were going sideways on them, they'd kill them. Frank, he was like a, for a, better, a piggy bank. There was money there to be made, but you didn't trust it. You didn't carry it with you. You didn't tell secrets uh, mm. to Frank because, uh, one, he was a hothead. And two, if he started drinking, there's just no telling what he's going to say to somebody. Uh, so he was just a hanger on, or he was uh, kind of something like somebody would go to a concert. They go to concert to concert because they love this entertainer. He was a groupie for a better term, but he had contacts with them. Mm. And do you think that he, you know, would have had ambitions to become a made man? Was that something he would have even been able to have done? I know his father was Sicilian. Was his mother fully Italian? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I don't know. I think, I don't think he was into the, um, he wanted other people to do all that kind of heavy stuff, heavy lifting. Right. Um, you know, what Mike's saying is, you know, is correct. And obviously, the thing with Sinatra was he had these, because of his fame and position, he, they used him as a conduit to get to the Kennedys, to get to Joe Kennedy, uh, and, and arrange, um, for the mob to become involved in buying the election for Kennedy in 1960. Um, I mean, he was wandering around golf course with Sam Giacana, who was the mafia boss of Chicago, one minute. The next minute, he's, one, you know, he's having a meeting with Joe Kennedy, JFK's father, um, to arrange uh, basically you know, bags of money, literally bags of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars being spread about various states which would be influential mm. getting the vote out for uh, for Kennedy in 60 in 1960 he's doing them favors like that it's um uh, much as they're mixing together but i think the other thing too is the mob were um starstruck they liked mm. seeing it, they liked to go to these things and they liked to impress they would take their wives to impress them at certain events they take the girlfriend to something else it's it's it was um, um, you know reverse fame really glory by being associated with Sinatra. Uh, the bigger he became, the bigger the, you know the bigger they were from the connection. And he did kind of have this kind of precarious relationship with the Kennedys. It seemed like he was really interested in them. And you know when JFK won the election, he kind of put him out on the back burner almost. What can you describe their relationship a bit more and how they kind of came to you know become associated was it to do with was it to do with the mafia well the well the the connection the the direct connection was peter lawford um who was kennedy's jfk's brother-in-law a member of the rat pack great early friend of well kind of colleague uh and friendly member of the rat pack with sinatra uh but he upset sinatra a couple of times and uh, later on, the big upset was that Lawford was supposedly to arrange for JFK on a trip to the West Coast to stay at Sinatra's home in Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all arranged and Sinatra was expecting the, the president to arrive and put got helipads or, you know, went to town. Um, you know, five-star everything uh, from wireless masks to um, paved runways, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, Kennedy thought, hang on a minute, uh, not such a good image to be hanging out with Sinatra and all his mobster friends. Um, much better I go and stay with Bing Crosby, who by that <laughs> stage is the pipe-smoking, um, uh, kind of cardigan-wearing 
at the pace of middle America. Mm. And so Lawford was on the outs from about then. Um, and that was kind of the, the breakup of this kind of bromance between Sinatra and, and Kennedy, um, kind of instigated by Robert Kennedy, who was then the Attorney General, and was, was out to get the mob and out to uh, bring law and order to America and kick mm. these guys away. But the, the Sinatra connection was basically, again, from Kennedy's point of view, he was a guy who'd done them a favor. And uh, mm. I, think, I think it was more of that than, um, more of that than, there was an embarrassment for Kennedy that he had done that. Um, and of course, Jackie Kennedy sort of disapproved as well of um, of the Sinatra connection. I like that term bromance you use because it does seem to describe the relationship. I mean, he, he, getting a helipad put in your apartment or your, your you know, your place for somebody to come visit it's it's a lot more of a lot more than going out and getting fresh sheets and towels for the visitors you know I would be pretty annoyed if somebody didn't show up for me when I had gone to all that effort as well so how did the fallout then of their relationship I guess affect um the, the mafia and kind of that sort of um connection that the three of them sort of almost had with each other well at that at that point um <laughs> It, it become you know it it sort of expands from a bromance into a um, a menage because at that point mm. we've got JFK sleeping with Judith Exner, who's sleeping with uh, Sam Giacana, who's the mafia boss of Chicago, who'd also slept with Sinatra, who introduced her to Kennedy, and if my memory is right, introduced her to Giancana as well. Mm. Um, so you've You've got on the surface what would look like a bit of a mess, but because of the the Secret Service not not blowing the whistle, there's no whistleblowers, and everybody very obviously fearful of Gia, of upsetting Giacana because he's a guy who uh, not only had murdered countless numbers of people, they wouldn't let him in the American army because he was such a psychopath mm-hmm. in the war. So I mean, this guy was was dangerous. So you, it's it's uh, and Sinatra is it's kind of. Uh, tap dancing around all these people, um, and you have to think maybe he just thought he was immortal or something and didn't didn't think of it because there's guys being rubbed out or disappearing or or as they always say going to Canada that lovely <laughs> for uh, going six feet under. Um, in these days, they thought that was just as bad going to Canada as being dead. The mm. uh, it's it's. Uh, I still find it quite astonishing. Um, and, Mike, you know, mentioning what Mike said about, you know, why law enforcement allowed that all to happen at that time, how, how he got away with it, how they all got away with it. That's it. I mean, how was this all going under the radar or was it even going under the radar? Was this something that the law enforcement was aware of? Oh, law enforcement was aware of the vast majority of it um, because of wiretaps that were being done from the FBI and LAPD was doing their own wiretaps, even though it was illegal, they were doing it. Uh, the FBI, they were doing called black bag jobs, which you would break into somebody's house or their business, go through things and leave, or you plant bugs in their house. And uh, that was being done to a lot of associates and a lot of the mob guys. But you had a person, Jake Hoover, first of all, he didn't head to the FBI, he kept saying there was no such thing as the mafia for years, you know, so there's no investigations being done. Uh, then you had the Kennedys involved. Uh, 
And Robert Kennedy, when he became the Attorney General and his brother's president, he knew uh, probably most of the connections his brother and father had with the mafia. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't about to bring a lot of charges, even though he was pushing a lot of organized crime people, he was looking at them. He was going to bring a lot of charges because that could involve his own family um, and close friends. So he backed off. And then when you look at other agencies like the LAPD intelligence, uh, all we did was gather information. We never arrested anybody. I was in there five years with almost 60 detectives. We never arrested one person. We were just strictly gathering intelligence. And because of that, the information never went any place except to the chief of police. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but uh, it was just a matter of law enforcement. They knew about the mob. They knew about a lot of things, but also during that time, the mob had a lot of influence with politicians on all levels and within police agencies. Um, in Chicago, during that time, they could do pretty much what they wanted uh, because of corruption in police. In L.A., there was corruption in the police force back then, and the mob could just get away with anything, well, pretty much anything. So it was a very strange situation. Everybody knew it. A lot of the media knew it. But at that time, they just wouldn't report it. So it sounds like the the best cap, no, the worst cap, maybe secret, um, among them. So yes, yes, uh, there was a a time when um, a friend whose father worked as a detective in the organized crime division where I ended up working, mm-hmm. they went to serve a subpoena on Sinatra in Palm Springs, and uh, they were chasing him around because Sinatra basically said it was for a grand jury. He said. Well, if you can find me, subpoena me, but good luck on that. He ran to his house down in Palm Springs. And so the intelligence guys were assigned to find him and serve him the subpoena. So the guys, they went down to Palm Springs. They were going from location to location where Sinatra always hung out. And they got there. Oh, Frank just left. He left two hours ago, whatever. So they find a, uh, just happened to come across a police woman they know from L.A., very attractive woman. And they asked her if she would help them serve the subpoena on Frank because if Frank saw two men coming up to him, like in an alley or in a parking lot, he may think he's going to get hit. Uh, but a woman, no, he's going to be open to that. Mm-hmm. Around, uh, they go to his house, finally. And the way the story goes, the guy, the detective said, well, the door was unlocked. Well, no, this guy, this detective was an expert at lock picking. So what he did is obviously he picked the lock. They go into the house and it's late in the evening and they, they're walking down the hallway and they go into this one bedroom and they see this man in bed and they're looking mm-hmm. at him. It can't be him. He's bald and he's got his teeth sitting on the, the nightstand next to him. That can't be Frank. They go down the hall a little further. There's a, a woman in there and they wake her up and they say, where's Frank? She goes, well, he's in the bedroom across the hall. That was Frank. The guy had his teeth out <laughs> and bald. So they go back in and they wake him up and they serve him the subpoena. Then they just took off. And he was uh, irate about that. He made a lot of threats. And he said, boy, if I had a gun, I would have killed him, so forth. But uh, it was just a shock. And things like that were done. Should they have gone in the house? No, no. But it was just a matter of that's how things were done back then. And intelligence mm-hmm. just did it. 
yeah, it, it sounds very KGB-esque the way that they were kind of spying. And I suppose the majority of the, the files or most of the files is made up of of that um, spying that was done on Sinatra through wiretaps and through gathering information from people who knew him? Oh, yes. Uh, you'd be surprised how people would talk, especially if they saw two organized crime detectives come to their office or to their house and said, listen, we know about X, Y, and Z, your relationship's not true. Either you talk to us or there's going to be problems for you. It, within that intelligence group and within the FBI intelligence, you operated pretty much like the mafia. Mm-hmm. You intimidated people. In some cases, they were threatened. In some cases, I know back uh, during that time, intelligence people took them out and just beat the heck out of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of intimidation going on. And most people within the mob, especially, and within the entertainment industry, that they knew the power in Los Angeles that LAPD intelligence wielded. And politicians were afraid of LAPD intelligence, even up to the governor. Uh, because most politicians on a high level in the U.S., they have issues. They have skeletons in their closet they don't want coming out. But that's what intelligence did, was gather those intelligence and put mm-hmm. them in the file and kept them for later. So um, it wasn't a matter of not knowing. Uh, a lot of it was known, but it was kept secret. And it seems like, obviously, that, that kind of attitude of or that kind of way of dealing with, you know, a mafia or, a, a, you know, even in gangland at the moment would be kind of, I guess it'd be frowned upon um, in a way. But is that the only way that you can, you know, as somebody who's worked in this um, arena for a long, long time, is that how you communicate with people involved in organized crime? Because is that the only language that they can speak is fear and intimidation? Well, some of us fear intimidation. Sometimes you go to their attorney and you cut a deal with their attorney. And there were many um, reporters on major newspapers in Southern California, New York, Chicago. You would exchange information with reporters. They would get information and they would feed it to us. And then we would get some information, but only information we wanted them to know. And we'd feed it to them, returning the favor. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of sources. And then there were... Uh, business associates that uh, had an axe to grind with Frank and other people, they would become involved and they'd tell you things. Um, When he was in Las Vegas, like many, many people, entertainers and VIPs, high-profile people in Las Vegas, their rooms were bugged. When they stayed in Mm -hmm. hotel suite, their rooms were bugged by the mob and by the uh, FBI, CIA, and so forth. So there's a lot of information coming out, uh, but it all stayed within the intelligence community. One thing at the very start of the book is this immediate mention, which is something very significant that happened in Frank's life and something that kind of, I guess, characterized who he was as a person is his son being kidnapped. Can you tell us about that? What happened and why was he taken? The background to the kidnapping was that it really was a, 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 a group of young guys uh, in Los Angeles, wanted to make some money and decided well, that they would kidnap Frank Jr. and make some and make some cash, easy cash. It was a very um, lackadaisical kind of plot. It was really mm-hmm. get hold of Frank Jr., who was uh, appearing in Lake Tahoe, uh, bundle him into a car, hide him out somewhere, ask for a pile of cash um, from Frank Sr., and um, that would be that. Um, of course, because of all the connections uh, that Sinatra had with the with the mob 
with the police, with the Kennedys, with the government. As soon as his son's kidnapped, he, put, he calls in all these kind of favors. But what Mike found out and what was quite astonishing, and it was through Sinatra's phone records, the first person he called after the kidnapping was Sam Giacana, the mafia boss in um, uh, Chicago. And by then, a, a kind of a close friend of Sinatra's at this point. Um, and then he calls, uh, makes another phone call, again on, on record, um, to this hitman who's also connected, uh, who's in California. So these are the people he immediately wants to find out who's taken his son because he thinks it's gangsters or mobsters or whoever, and they will sort it out much more efficiently than the Attorney General of the United States, Robert mm -hmm. Kennedy, who he then phones, who is much like, you know, he's got a jotting, a list of direct numbers for Kennedy and all these people, but uh, they're mm -hmm. down his pecking order at this point. Um, and he's also talking to, obviously, local law enforcement, Nevada, because Tahoe, where kidnap happens, is in, is in Nevada. So you've got the state there. You've got the California Highway Patrol, the California cops. You've got the FBI. You've got uh, Nevada government aides. You've got lawyers. You've got everything working to find, this, to find the son, who is, by this stage, is in a sort of a very leaky Chevrolet dripping through a snowstorm on his on their way down to Los Angeles. Um, but it was indicative of, of Sinatra's mentality about how to deal with problems. Mm. Um, you know, the, the mob were his first port of call. Um, so that I think at that thing, um, at that point in his life, it kind of proves, I think, that from day one, as a kid from the very early beginnings in Hoboken, all the way through his life, to, to, to his funeral, to the, day of, you know, to the day of his funeral, the, the mob connection was there. Um, mm. And I, I think previously, it, until we did the book, I think in a sense it had been it played down because it, it's such a fascinating life that he's had and there's so many elements of it that if you do a book or a film or a TV series about Frank Sinatra, You've got all the women, you've got all the songs, you've got all the movies, you've got all this, blah, blah, blah. You've got so much to pack in. That mm -hmm. an like the mob thing um, doesn't get lost, but it gets um, diluted. And I think what we tried to do was concentrate on that. Obviously, you bring in all the other elements um, to tell the story, but the, the focus was very much on this kind of uh, his association there. And I think that's why it works, actually. Mm, absolutely. I think for me as well, it's kind of the first account I've seen of Sinatra in full, where it is a concentration on that side of his life rather than the women and the, you know, the the sleeping around and all that kind of the the, the jazz and the, the the rap pack and all that sort of thing. Um, but tell us a little bit about the mafia. I guess one question I had myself when I was reading it was, what did the mafia have um, kind of an influence on Hollywood or any other kind of celebrities in the same way, or was it just so happened to be Frank, just Frank? You no, know, the, the mafia at that time in Hollywood, they were very powerful. Jimmy Weasel Fradiano was uh, one of their men, enforcers in L.A. Plus there was the L.A. mafia. They had their own family out there. But mm -hmm. there was a lot of influence in the entertainment industry because there was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was easy, in a sense, to control some entertainers out of fear. And mm -hmm. I know of some entertainers that were being blackmailed by the mafia. Uh, 
for things that they did and for some of the, if you want to say, the pornos that they were in at the time, but they weren't pornos, they were private ones, but the mob got a hold of them and they started blackmailing these people. So mm-hmm. the mob was very powerful. Um, and as like, probably seen the Godfather movie, the guy that, the entertainer in there wanted to posi- position in this movie, the studio head wouldn't give it to him. So what happened? They made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And so that was based on a lot of truth. Truth. Mm-hmm. In that. But they would do that. Because uh, I know that from reading the intelligence files and being on surveillances when heads of networks, television networks, heads of studios and so forth, were meeting with mob guys in L.A. and in Vegas at times and maybe San Diego further south. We'd follow them and we'd see them uh, meeting together. And they were generally asking for favors, but they knew if they didn't provide the favor, there could be ramifications. And mm-hmm. one of them was the guy mentioned Sidney Korshak, the attorney in uh, basically Hollywood. He could shut down a movie set with a simple telephone call. He could bring in uh, a lot of fear and a lot of power behind him from the mob and basically influence uh, studio heads, producers, directors, anything in the entertainment industry they could get involved in and they could really muscle in and control it at the time. So uh, there was a lot of influence going on. And then there was a lot of that influence too you'd see on some of the Hollywood Boulevard, the nightclubs and so forth. The entertainers would go, the mob was there. And a lot of the people who owned those restaurants and nightclubs were, for better term, informants for LAPD intelligence because we could have their liquor license pulled and that would kill any business like that. So they wanted to be friends with us, but they also wanted to be friends with the mob guys. So there's just loads and loads of influence at the time. Mm -hmm. And I guess I have to ask, I suppose, when it came to looking through the FBI files, and obviously you said you, you went for, you knew what you were kind of looking for, but for anyone like myself who's internally nosy and looked at those files and was like, wow, I'd love to go through all this. I guess the book is a really great condensing of, of that. But I have to ask, what was the most interesting or the most shocking kind of revelation that you found within those files? Uh, a lot of them were pretty shocking, uh, but... <sighs> could be uh, where Frank went to the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, asking to work for them. And what he would do, he would go worldwide or whatever and uh, talk to people and ask questions, basically what the CIA wanted them, wanted to know about, he would ask the questions. He said he could get in, see the royal family in England and so forth and chat with them and get information. He could go worldwide and do that. So that was pretty interesting because the CIA thought about it and uh, they basically said, oh, gee, thanks, Frank, but uh, no, we really can't use your help now. And part of the problem was because they were already dealing with the mafia, with Sam Giancana, Johnny Roselli, and a bunch of other guys to kill Fidel Castro and carry out other assassinations. So the last thing they want to do is bring Frank in where he may catch wind of that in some fashion that these mobsters are working for the CIA. And, and you know, Frank... Uh, would know about Robert Mayhew, who was the right-hand man, Howard Hughes, who was running basically Vegas at the time. They were afraid he would say something because he liked to brag. And he liked to brag about his connections with the mob guys, uh, especially Bugsy Siegel going way back. He just admired him. And uh, 
So when you have that information, it's uh, buried there and it's, it's, it's new to most people, to the outside world. But if you work in intelligence, you know a lot of that's information already. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that was probably one of the major items that he went to the CIA. He had his reasons for doing it. He was trying to get his gaming license back in Nevada. And he thought, which is true, they could intercede and he would receive his gaming license back. Mm. He received that in another fashion through payoffs. You know, he received it back. So It worked out for him in the end. And Douglas, what about you? I guess from the other side as well. I mean, you kind of come from the more, the other side of, of looking at Hollywood and, and that kind of cultural context around it. What for you, I guess, when you were researching and writing the book, what was most shocking to you that you found out? I think the, <clears throat> I think the all that, the number of celebrities that not just Sinatra, um, who kind of what for the mob, are what mm. kind of others by being not so much honey trapped now and again, uh, kind of compromised that way, but mainly they owe the money. It's usually big, big names, headliners from Las Vegas, who their whole lifetime, like Jerry Lewis, his whole life, he played Vegas to pay his gambling debts. I mean, so it's quite, when you suddenly see this, you know, brought up with a watching a guy, a funny guy on TV or, or movies or whatever. Um, and I think the most spectacular uh, character in a way it comes out with it is Dean Martin. Because mm. he, again, he was brought up with the mob. He was, he was uh, uh, croupier and um, kind of playing pool with these mob when he was a teenager with the mob guys. And he knew, he had a kind of gut feeling and instinct, and he just kept well away. But he was so close with that Rat Pack and so involved on a day-to-day basis. How he kind of magically kept to, you know, he's just turned his back on them and they never bothered him. Um, so that that was a surprise that he, you know, that he was uh, in, uh, in terms of everybody else, he was clean, as it were. No, I think the the, the pervasion of the corruption of the mafia Throughout America, but particularly in, in you know in what we were investigating in this was just Hollywood, just how much it, it stank and had stunk for a long time. You know, you read about it, you think about it, you you know, you even write it. But when you when you really see it in black and white and files and talk to people and so on, it it comes it eventually comes home just how how you couldn't turn a corner without, as Mike said, Kenny Sidney Kolchak could make a phone call and stop a movie being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, The Godfather, they were filming in New York, the unions in New York, and the mob um, didn't want them to film, Didn't sorry, didn't want them to use the word mafia in the movie. Um, and if they did use the word mafia or they didn't cooperate with them, uh, there would be no movie being filmed in New York. Um, so the deal was done. They wouldn't use the word mafia. Mm. Equally, Korshak can ring up. He could close down Hollywood Park Racy. He could... Um, I mean, I was in Vegas once in a, going to, and I can't remember the casino, uh, to a show, gone into the thing, um, and, and it, on the way there, I've been, I think the radio or what I read in the paper, I can't remember, the, that there was a big dispute with the unions between the new casino owner who wanted, didn't want to their new terms. I had been in there about five minutes and uh, walking through the casino, as you have to to get anywhere, and all the metal sheets Wall, uh, gates or anything just closed down. Something mm-hmm. had gone off and gone wrong. It's only been a robbery. But so everybody, the whole place just empties. 
And um, of course, that's what it was. It was just quietly making the point that unless they paid up their and looked after their um, employees and the way that they were being asked to do, um, the, the casino would be in trouble every day. So it's, 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 it's the mafia. There you are. It's the mafia. Yeah. It's incredibly interesting, actually, when you say that about, you know, um, them almost, you know, want to shut down filming for The Godfather. Do you think, that, I mean, if they if they wanted to, they surely could have. Do you think they kind of like the glamorization of their, of them? Oh, oh I think so. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they, I mean, the, the thing, the, the, the funny thing, of course, now is if you meet any of these kind of wannabe bobsters now, they all go around talking like, you know, it's not like mm-hmm. Marlon Brando. They all want, they want to be taller than Al Pacino, but they want to talk the same way. <laughs> they all, a lot, and a lot of the young kind of heavy guy, they all want to be in Jimmy Can and, you know, beating people up and all of this stuff. It's, um, it's, I, 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 you know, 50 years ago, they would all wanted to be John Wayne or shoot, shooting them up and doing this and that. Mm. It's, it's, it's a strange old, um, uh, strange thing, but it's, it's, it's like, um, uh, spy novelists and Lacari and how we all know what a mole is and what, you know, and pavement yeah. artists and, and all of that kind of stuff, that vernacular that comes in. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, as Mike said earlier, it's, uh, you know, an offer you an offer you can't refuse. Mm. So tell us then. Um, this is obviously your second book together, Frank Frank Sinatra and the Mafia Murders. What is next? Are you guys going to get your hands on some other case files, or do you think you're going to do another book anytime soon? We're going to do another book. <laughs> Brilliant, <laughs> Douglas. You look a bit exhausted there. Uh, <laughs> just the thought of that question. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking <laughs> about all the files. <laughs> <laughs> Because obviously your last one was on Marla Monroe and her kind of definitely her being in bed, so to speak, with the with the Kennedys, and this is kind of a nice link in with the, with the this book and this story as well. So you're kind of on the same uh, path. With uh, any hints on the third one, what it could be about? Would it be anywhere near what you've been currently doing? Yeah, I think so. Very, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's certainly it's it's you know the the kind of Kennedys take centre stage. I think this yeah, time, yeah. but. Um, uh, that that's the plan at the moment, but there's obviously lots of files to to still go through. But that's um, but I think again, it's um, it's like a bicycle wheel. This whole thing, there's so many spokes and sort of sections to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know the Kennedys at that point in 19, you know, well, late 50s, 1960, most powerful man in the world. And when you think about the circus that was going on around him. Uh, and the characters, it's um, it's interesting that no one has really focused on that period. Mm-hmm. They tend to focus far more, you know, for obvious reasons, on the assassination. But you've got to think, mm-hmm. you know, why did the assassination happen? And, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, caused some behaviour. And is it the behaviour before that that caused the, the assassination? So there's lots to, lots to talk about, lots to, to read. So we can talk to you again. Exactly. Douglas Thompson and Mike Rothmiller, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Beanie. If you like this show, love true crime, leave us a review. Why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.
Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.